Hello and welcome to Story Talk. This is your host, Laura Randall, and it's been a while since we got to talk about some good stories. Almost nine months, if I estimate correctly, and you may be able to deduce from that that part of the reason it's been such a long time is that we were having a baby at our house. Yay! We love those babies and we like to focus on them, especially when they are so precious and small and seeing the world for the first time. Now our baby life rhythms are settling into place and I've been feeling excited to get back and talk about stories with you. However, since there are some new schedule restraints on our end, I am introducing a new type of story talk today, which we'll be calling Blitz Talks. And these Blitz Talks will be based on movies that I've only seen once. There is a lot of value to wrestling with and analyzing a movie right away after you watch it. You don't have to watch a movie multiple times. You don't have to read a story multiple times to start analyzing it and to start digging into the themes, the symbols, the characters, the the plot, the writing, all of those things. You, you'll get a first impression of their merits or shortcomings. And through these Blitz talks, I hope to give a glimpse on how we can all better engage with our stories even after a limited amount of time with them. When we're analyzing a story on a deep level, it's really beneficial to watch it or read it or experience the story multiple times. But we can start talking about the story even while the story is still being told. We don't even have to wait until the end. In fact, I think it's a really fun game to kind of guess against myself what I think is going to happen and then compare that with the results that uh, come from the actual movie and whether the results that the movie maker came up with are better or worse than than what I was coming up with in my head. It's It's kind of a fun creative exercise that makes it less of a passive consumer product and more of a mental sport. Maybe that's something you ha you will have fun with. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's something you already do. But in any case, today we're going to have a blitz talk, which means that I have only watched this movie once. I jotted down some notes. I've talked about it a little bit with the people around me, but this is a pretty raw first impression of, of this movie. And I hope that it will help inspire you to go talk about either this movie or, or other movies immediately after you see them. Just start processing them right away. Start looking at the idiosyncrasies, at the things you liked, at the things you didn't like, and separating out the differences between the writing and the acting and the visual storytelling from the concept and costume design, etc. If you don't know what all of those things are, that's okay. We're going to talk about a couple of them today because... Our movie today is the most recent in a long line of remake offerings from Disney Studios. It is called Mary Poppins Returns, and it is a bit different from the other remakes that Disney has done because it's not technically a remake. This one is supposed to be a sequel to the original Mary Poppins, which was released in 1964 with Julie Andrews. However, I think that the word remake is still extremely appropriate for this movie since they match up almost scene for scene in the same 
ordered. They're telling almost the same story, but I would argue that they're telling it worse. If I had to choose just one word to describe this movie, I think the word would have to be self-conscious. The entire film is saturated with this attitude that the audience must already love Mary Poppins. And in this case, I do. I do love the original Mary Poppins. But the the attitude of the movie is that since you love the old Mary Poppins, you're kind of required to love this Mary Poppins. It takes what I feel like are a bunch of cheap story shots. And this especially applies in the way that it tries to inspire nostalgia about the Mary Poppins world. It seems to be trying to borrow nostalgia, almost like you would borrow a piece of clothing from the old movie. It's trying to take nostalgia from the original Mary Poppins and use it to disguise its own shortcomings as a story. And the reason I say that is because the the movie is just littered throughout with these small references to the original movie, little lines or little moments. And most of them become like key moments for this movie, such as let's go fly a kite or the tuppence that Michael invests in the bank in the original movie or, or the Admiral and his cannon that goes off by the hour. There are just a bunch of little things that, that were small moments in the original movie that they try to use in this new movie to create nostalgia for the the audience. And some of that can be really effective in storytelling, in writing, in movie making. It can be really effective to draw on the audience's knowledge of previous work. In this movie, however, they took it too far. It was too much. It created an end product that was not very original, not very sensical, and not even very appealing other than the stunning visual quality of the movie. And this leads us to an interesting point. The separation between good storytelling and good writing and good movie making. And included under the umbrella of good movie making are all of the arts that go into the sensory experience of the movie. That means the concept design, the set design, the costume design, the lighting, music, sound effects, visual effects, all of these things. And they really aced the movie making in in Mary Poppins Returns. Everything is beautiful. The sets and the costumes are elaborate. The effects are pretty cool. The, The music is fine, although I prefer the original Mary Poppins music, partially because of Julie Andrews, which we'll go into later, but also because it more uh, avidly pursues the contrariness embodied in Mary Poppins, the ordinary with the unexpected, the mundane with the magical. However, the music in the new movie is still very appealing. It's very catchy. It showcases the lyrical skills of Lin-Manuel Miranda really well. There are no big failings in the score. It's a great score. Uh, I just happen to prefer the older one for reasons that we will touch on later. And this brings us to an interesting division. And I think this movie is a really good way to analyze this division. It's it's the difference between good writing and good storytelling with good movie making. And under the umbrella of 
movie making, I include all of the arts that have to do with the sensory experience of the movie. That means the sound design, the way that that things sound or the music or the vocals or the uh, sound effects, those kinds of things. There's the visual effects, which in this movie would include things like Mary Poppins talking umbrella and Mary Poppins and the kids going underwater to swim in the bathtub or floating on the balloons. Those are visual effects. Then there is costume design, the costuming, the colors, the makeup, the hair, and then there and then set design or concept design, environment design. Those are each a little bit different, but they, they kind of fit into the same group. They are designing the areas in which the action takes place, the areas in which the actors present the story. And also, one more, the cinematography. So the, the vision or the choices that the director and the storyboarders and the, and the producer have all made about how to frame the shot, what to show and what not to show. Those are all included in the sensory experience of the movie, the movie making aspects of the film. Then there is the storytelling or the writing aspect of the film. And that includes the dialogue, the sequence of events, the the logic of how the world works in the world of the story, the consistency with which the characters represent themselves, the choices that they make moving towards a focused ending. Those are all those are all dealing with the writing part of the movie. And in Mary Poppins, we have incredible movie making and awful storytelling. Everything about this movie is visually stunning. The costumes are beautiful. The the sets are elaborate. The music and the sound design was really influenced and, and it seems largely written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who also helped with Moana. He wrote Hamilton, obviously a big name in music right now. So the music is interesting too. In fact, several of the songs were so catchy that even after only watching the movie once, they were still stuck in my head for the next day and a half or so. So all of the movie making elements here are really on point. It really showcases how skilled the Disney artists have become uh, in their craft because it's a beautifully crafted movie. And in my opinion, that just makes it more painful that the storytelling and the writing was so below par. So let's dig into the the storytelling a little bit. In this movie, we, we start out with uh, Jane and Michael. Actually, we start out with Lin-Manuel Miranda, who is acting the remolded role of Bert from the original Mary Poppins. But in this movie, his name is Jack, and he's a lamplighter. And we're following him around London, and he's singing a song about London. And then we get to Cherry Tree Lane, and he introduces us to the Admiral, just like just like Bert did in the original Mary Poppins. And then we come to number 17 of Cherry Tree Lane, and inside there's crashing going on, and something has exploded. The sink has exploded as we go inside. And then we see Jane and Michael, and they're all grown up, and they're running down the stairs, and they are trying to like solve this sink problem. And Ellen, who is the younger housekeeper in the original Mary Poppins, is now their old housekeeper in this Mary Poppins 
the house is a little bit broken down and run down. Michael and Jane are kind of frenzied. They obviously rely on the children almost as fellow adults in the household because the children immediately start calling the plumber in this case to fix the sink and they uh, start to mop up the mess. They're helping Ellen. They're really responsible, except for the youngest child of the house, whose name is Georgie. He's still very much a kid, but at least the two older children have already accepted a lot of the responsibility of being members of this household and contributing to its proper functioning. In the subsequent scenes of the movie, we find out that Michael's wife has died, leaving him with the three children, that he took out a loan on their house, which is now being pursued in full by the bank because he missed some payments. We learn that Michael is an artist and following suit with our society's stereotype of artist, he is a little bit scatterbrained, not really on top of his finances, doesn't have his paperwork organized, doesn't have his household organized, things are breaking and he can't fix them, he doesn't have any money, etc. And Jane, meanwhile, comes every day or it seems like she might live there part-time, even though she has her own apartment elsewhere in London. And they're all trying to figure out life now that that Michael's wife is gone and their household has been emotionally and financially destabilized. When the children go walking, I forget where they're walking to, but they start walking away from the house. This is where Mary Poppins comes in. Michael makes an impulsive decision to throw away the old kite that we saw from the original Mary Poppins. It's a green kite kind of torn up because it was used so much. And it was up in his attic. And as they're looking for a certificate of shares that will give them the financial boost to pay off the second mortgage that Michael has taken out on their house. They're looking for this certificate. They find this kite and Michael throws the kite out and the kite just gets picked up by the wind and it blows through the park past the children and the youngest child, Georgie, who is also the least responsible child, takes off over the grass and he runs through the bushes and he catches the kite and he's holding on to it and it starts lifting him off the ground and they they pull him back down and they're wrestling with him as the kite is like in the clouds. I mean, it looks like they're fishing in the clouds. And then down comes Mary Poppins. They fished Mary Poppins out of the clouds. And she comes down onto the grass and she walks home and immediately resumes her old position, her old rooms, and has a bunch of kind of pithy lines about how she's here to take care of the bank's children again. And oh, yes, you kids too. I'm here to take care of you too. <laughs> which is kind of a funny line for Disney to be using for this movie since we all saw Saving Mr. Banks and we know that Mary Poppins wasn't about saving the children, it was about saving Mr. Banks. So all of that aside, Mary Poppins gets to this house and she takes up residence and gives the children a bath and starts breaking the children into a life of imagination and fun and uh, she basically gives them a space to be kids again. I don't feel the need to go scene by scene with this movie because if you've seen the original Mary Poppins, then you've pretty much you pretty much know the sequence of events for this movie too. Uh, Mary Poppins takes the kids on a couple of adventures. She 
she jumps into an art piece. In this case, it's a bowl. In the original movie, it was a chalk painting, but in this case, it's a bowl. And they have some adventures on the bowl. And then they come out and they go into town and they visit one of Mary Poppins' relatives. In this case, it's a cousin named Topsy and her house turns upside down, so they have to walk on the ceiling. Uh, which if you've seen the original Mary Poppins again will sound very familiar because they go and visit Mary Poppins' uncle, I think it is, uncle or, or cousin, great uncle maybe, who floats on the ceiling and they have a tea party with him up on the ceiling in the original Mary Poppins. And after they visit her cousin, then they also go to the bank and make some mischief with the bank and Michael, who serves as the modernized Mr. Banks, loses his job because of the actions of the children. And the, the children run out of the bank feeling very slighted and misunderstood and unheard by their father. And they get lost. They have a huge athletic dance number of lamplighters versus uh, chimney sweeps from the original. And then Mary Poppins takes them home where they are met at the door by an angry Michael Banks who says, you're late. He gets really angry at Mary Poppins and at the children until the children say something that Mary Poppins has taught them. And uh, Michael's heart is touched and they, they reconcile their differences with their father. The children reconcile their differences with their father and, and he forgives Mary Poppins for coming in and disrupting their way of of living up until that point. And it all climaxes with a big scene at the bank in which there's money on the line, the house is on the line, the, the family fortune is on the line, and Michael ultimately decides that he he loves his family more than he cares about money or his job, which is also reminiscent of the original, but I would argue that they didn't write it as well in this remake. And after this fiasco at the bank, there's an incredible financial surprise that saves the family. And the movie ends with the family kind of bonding together over uh, having fun in the park and Mary Poppins leaves. Now, you might think if the sequence of events is so similar, well, it must be a well-written movie because the first movie was so well-written. But there is much more to writing and especially writing well than getting a sequence of events that mimics another good piece of writing. The sequence of events is only the framework for the good writing. It is important. It can't be discarded or ignored, but the sequence of events here does not make up for the low quality of writing elsewhere. And in fact, it's kind of amazing that they were able to turn this wonderful original Mary Poppins movie and remake it with stunning visual effects and beautiful costumes, great actors, like they have an all-star lineup of actors and almost the same sequence of events and still ruin it. I'm, I'm kind of flabbergasted at that. But anyway, let's start breaking apart uh, the, the real problem. Let's, let's, get, let's get into the gritty details of the problems here. The biggest and most immediate problem that I perceived was the casting of Emily Blunt as the actress for Mary Poppins. I wouldn't go so far as to suggest that she was the wrong actress, but it was the wrong acting 
for this movie. Whether that was her doing or the director's doing or someone else's doing, I don't know. But we are supposed to believe because this is Michael and Jane grown up. All of the sets look very similar. All of the lines harken back to the original Mary Poppins as produced by Disney Studios. So we are supposed to believe that this Mary Poppins portrayed by Emily Blunt is the Julie Andrews Mary Poppins in a future day. It is hard for an audience to accept a character transplant like that in any movie. But in this case, I think it was a total mistake because Emily Blunt has an acting style that is much more like the stepmother in Cinderella, the wicked stepmother, than she does like Julie Andrews. Julie Andrews comes in as Mary Poppins and she's stern and strict, but very amiable. And she's got this sparkle in her eyes and this beautiful smile and this gentle, kind, soft voice that is so melodious and beautiful whenever she sings. And she has this, this grace and charm about her acting that makes her very approachable to the children, even though she's somewhat unexpected and also pretty firm about her demands from the children. Emily Blunt, however, swoops in to the Banks house in this movie and seems to be completely self-centered. She's always looking at herself, and I know that's a, that's a mark from the book, and she did it a little bit in the original, but there is a very different feeling to the way that she does it in Mary Poppins Returns from the way that she did it in Mary Poppins. She seems rather preoccupied with herself. And she's always sauntering around and kind of flourishing her hands and her body language is all closed. Unlike Julie Andrews, whose body language was mostly open. It was firm and it was stable, but it was open. Emily Blunt's body language is sauntering. It's self-conscious. It's, it's closed. It's not at all like the Julie Andrews Mary Poppins. And to top that off, her voice is not as melodious. Her voice is fine, but it's not the Julie Andrews voice that we all fell in love with from Mary Poppins. And her less melodious, less enchanting voice combined with all of this closed, self-conscious body language. And then the writing for her is very snappish. It's, it's almost rude. And in many cases, the way that she denies that the children have had fantastic experiences with her feels more like lying than it did with the original Mary Poppins. Because with the original Mary Poppins, uh, she would sit down with the children, uh, for example, when they go to bed after the chalk drawing, and the children are saying to Julie Andrews, Mary Poppins, that they've been in a horse race, that they were in the chalk drawing, and wasn't it exciting? And she won the horse race, and how cool. And Mary Poppins, Julie Andrews, replies to them, me in a horse race, how dare you suggest such a thing? Which is a kind of denial. She she kind of plays with the kids' heads a little bit in that way, but she never directly contradicts them. She never directly denies that it happened. She never tells them that they're liars. She never tells them like, that didn't happen. And in the Mary Poppins Returns movie, she does do that. She directly contradicts the children. She She tells them that they're making things up. And it feels dishonest from her. It doesn't feel playful. It feels rude. Thus, as these kids are just 
waking up again to what it means to be children, to have fun with each other, to go and explore and and enjoy things together rather than be responsible for things in the household like the plumbing. Uh, just as they are awakening to these things, we have Mary Poppins kind of cutting them off and giving them these really fantastical experiences, but then denying that they happened. And it's confusing. It was confusing for even me as an adult audience member. I couldn't figure out what to feel about Mary Poppins because her her body language and her writing and her mannerisms didn't match the Mary Poppins that I was supposed to think that she was. The next problem with this movie is that it seems to try and add a whole bunch of extra stuff. It's it's kind of cluttered uh, as a story because they keep trying to make side things more important than they should be. It's unclear whether this movie is about Michael Banks and Mary Poppins, or Mary Poppins and the children, or Mary Poppins and Jack and Jane. Jack and Jane kind of have a strange like romance on the sidelines here. Or about uh, the entire Banks family plus Mary Poppins against Mr. Wilkins, who plays the big bad wolf or the, the bad guy in this movie. Like there are too many different conflicts going on and too many different important characters. They've elevated the Admiral character to almost being a side character in this movie. And they've taken Jack and made him a more central role. But since Jack is not focused on Mary Poppins like Bert was, he's focused on Jane. That makes Jane more important. And Jane is the the Mary Poppins Returns corollary to Mrs. Banks from the original Mary Poppins. So we have all of these confusing character strings going all through this movie. You're just walking into this web of conflicts and you, it's not really clear which one is supposed to be taking the main stage. The original Mary Poppins focused its screen time on the relationship between Mary Poppins and the children. And through the children, she affects Mr. Banks. So it's really about Mary Poppins affecting Mr. Banks through helping the children. And Bert is a side character who helps her. The bank is a pressure on Mr. Banks that Mary Poppins frees Mr. Banks from. Um, but in this movie, all of these all of these conflicts and tensions are kind of confused. So that was a big problem too in this movie. And then going along with that, this movie has a more active antagonist than the original Mary Poppins did. The original Mary Poppins, if you remember, features a, a bank, the employer of Mr. Banks. The nouns in here get kind of confusing when we're talking about them. But Mr. Banks is employed by a bank and the bank is asserting too much pressure on Mr. Banks to perform at a level that would compromise his relationships with his family. And Mary Poppins' introduction disrupts Mr. Banks' life so much that it actually dislodges him from those expectations of the bank. It gets him fired, but it also frees him to commit himself to his family. In this movie, it seems like they approached that. I mean, there is a point during the long 
crisis climax of the movie in which Michael Banks, who is the corollary character to Mr. Banks from the original, so Michael Banks finally gives up his desire to save the house and get enough money to pay off the mortgage. He finally gives that up and says, I've got all I need right here with my family. It is kind of a bitter line from him at that moment. I mean, he says it with an air of, well, this is all I've got left, so I guess I'm going to like it and I'm going to defend it. It's not quite the same as Mr. Banks from the original who actively decides to give up any goals that he have with the, has with the bank and simply have fun living and enjoying his family instead. So there's a, there's a pretty big difference in the attitude that they take when they are dislodging themselves from the banks. But it seems like this movie did try to approach that same theme but in the Mary Poppins Returns, that theme is confused and complicated by the fact that there is a real active villain working at the bank, in charge of the bank. Mr. Wilkins, who is the executive at the bank, puts on this face of trying to help Michael Banks uh, pay off the mortgage for his house while secretly trying to repossess his house, secretly trying to oust him. And his character is very confusing. He has an alter ego within Mary Poppins Returns, who is an animated wolf, who is also a villain towards the children. And you can, you can kind of feel how confusing it's getting because I can't even explain it in summary without it sounding confusing. And that should have been a red flag early on in the production of this movie that it was it was going nowhere fast. But they uh, they kept all of this in. So Mr. Wilkins is a really confusing character. He acts like he wants to help Michael Banks. He stays in the office until midnight to see if Michael Banks can get him the loan. But then when Michael Banks shows up, he has them lock the door. And it's just really not clear. He says that he's a man of his word, but then he's broken his word this whole way along in the movie. And it like his motivations don't really make sense. And then the way that they resolve this active villainy towards the Banks family is by reintroducing the the old uncle of Mr. Wilkins, who used to be in charge of the bank and who was a friend to Mr. Banks. And, and all of a sudden, at the end of the movie, he just swoops in and says, the only mistake I made was putting you in charge. So you're out and I'm in and I'm going to take back over. And then he tells the banks that Michael invested his tuppence in the bank a long time ago. And now it's matured through some investments. And now it's enough that it can pay off the, the loan for his house. The only good thing about this scene is that Dick Van Dyke acts the old man. Dick Van Dyke, I would watch him in any movie. In fact, I think it would have been an instant upgrade to this movie if they had actually just cast Dick Van Dyke and Julie Andrews in their original roles again. But anyway, he comes in as the old man and, and does this whole scene and it just doesn't fit. It's, it's kind of a deus ex machina. And in story writing... That means that the ending was too neatly tied up, that there was a force that comes in at the end that saves the day for everybody, but doesn't make sense with the story, doesn't really fit with the progression of the story. And the whole climax scene is like a stutter step of deus ex machinas. 
first, there's the deus ex machina of Mary Poppins catching the clock hand just before it strikes midnight. Midnight is the time when they have to have turned in the certificate of shares so that they can pay off the bank loan. So that that's their deadline. And right before Big Ben strikes midnight, Mary Poppins flies up on her umbrella to catch the clock and turn it backwards. Uh, and this is the way that they define turning back time. Doesn't seem very fair to me since time didn't actually stop, but okay. So she turns back the clock and that gives Michael and Jane enough time to get upstairs. Then they have this kite, which just happens to have been saved from the waste paper bin by one of the children and then repaired by Georgie with another piece of paper, which was also going to be thrown away, but again saved by chance. And surprise, not really, not really a surprise. The piece of paper is the share certificate that they've been looking for all along, but they only notice it on the kite as they're already loading up the moving van to drive away just before midnight when they've already packed up the house. And at that point, they're already too late to make it to the bank. So Mary Poppins and Jack and the kids have to go and turn back time, i.e. turn back the clock so that Big Ben doesn't chime on time, which gives Michael and Jane enough time to race to the bank but then when the big bad wolf Wilkins locks the door against Michael and Jane, they have to find some other way into his office. So Michael gets to use the special line, which is, let's go fly a kite, Jane. And they take the kite over to the side of the building and they fly it up in front of his window and they're trying to get him to notice. And he's not noticing and never mind the fact that it's actually really hard to fly kites and especially to fly them where you want them to be flown. Like wind doesn't really work that way. But in this movie it does so they they're flying this kite in front of his window trying to get him to notice he's not noticing and then the kite bursts through the window to land on mr wilkins desk just as the clock chimes midnight yeah it's a mess and this whole uh, chain of happy chances just feels so contrived feels so forced now, of course, in reality, everything in a movie is contrived because everything in a movie is deliberately created. But one of the main goals of writing and one of the main goals of movie making is to take a story and craft it in, an, in a way that it seems to just be unfolding naturally. You want the audience to feel like they are just glimpsing another reality and a reality that would keep going whether or not they were watching it. And the kite here really hampers that impression. It feels a lot like the way you might wrap up a story if you were just telling it off the top of your head. If you had no foresight and more no forethought about how to wrap up a story and you were like, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and it was all fine. Like if it had been off of the top of their heads and just spewed out of someone's mouth, you would have gotten a good chuckle out of it and then been done with that story. But because they took so much time, you know, this this movie was in the pipeline for years and someone had to be reading through and watching this movie hundreds, maybe thousands of times under different eyes of critique and no one ever noticed that this climax was a disaster. 
the most alarming thing about this climax is that it took so much time to make and it is so sloppy. It feels like a lazy way of tying up all of these these conflicts and these tensions that they've introduced. The only thing that could have made this ending any worse is if it had also been some kind of romantic resolution between Jane and Jack. At least they didn't try to do that, but that was pretty much the only thing they could have done that would have made it even more forced than it was. But just in case the audience hadn't lost patience with the movie yet, there's still another sequence after this in which the Banks family is now apparently financially fine. They're all walking around in new clothes and it's springtime and the cherry trees are in bloom on Cherry Tree Lane, which they weren't at the beginning. So that's a sign that everything is better now. And they walk into the park and they start buying balloons. And then the balloon lady is saying, you better pick the right one because a lot of people have picked the wrong balloon for them. And they start picking out balloons. And when Michael picks out his balloon and lets it float up into the air, he starts floating along with it. And then the children get balloons and they start floating along with them. And then Jane and Jack get balloons and then the Admiral and then every character in this story, except for Mary Poppins, strangely, except for Mary Poppins, is getting balloons and flying in the air what what is happening and jack as he's i'm sorry michael as he turns back from the balloon that's carrying him up into the air he turns back to jane who is still on the ground and says it's true it's true all those things that we imagine doing with mary poppins are true and then he floats up into the air and they have this big musical number and you're supposed to have a really feel-good ending about this movie but mostly the only thing that i'm feeling at the end of the movie is really annoyed that the movie tries so hard and takes so many cheap shots to try and force the audience into feeling magic, into feeling nostalgia, into feeling warm fuzzies about the Banks family when they didn't write a good story. They didn't write a good ending for the Banks family. And it, I just think P.L. Travers must be turning in her grave. If she didn't, if she wasn't super excited about making the first Mary Poppins movie, if, it, if that was kind of a begrudging thing as it is represented in Saving Mr. Banks, then she must be writhing in her grave over this movie. It just felt completely disrespectful to the characters that they had crafted from that original book and movie. And I think a big reason for that is something that we can see in many of the other Disney remakes also right now that Disney seems to have forgotten that magic has to be handled really lightly, the really light touch to be effective. And the reason it was so effective in the original Mary Poppins is because most of the magic happened just below the visibility level of all of the adults. You know, Mary Poppins comes to the Banks house in the original Mary Poppins flying in on her umbrella and the nannies are being blown away down the street. And the only people to witness this happening, besides the nannies themselves, I guess, but the only people to witness this happening 
are the children in the window and they're seeing this happen and they have no idea what to expect with Mary Poppins when she comes in the door. And when the maid answers the door, she saw that there was a long line outside before. And when she opens the door and it's just Mary Poppins, she's stunned into silence. And there are all of these moments in the original Mary Poppins where it's just magical enough to make the adults pause but not so overtly magical, not so in-your-face magical that they have to believe it. And that's what makes it fun to believe it, is the faith element. Once the magic is pushed in their faces, once Michael is being lifted off the ground on a balloon, obviously by some crazy magic, he's not believing anymore. He knows that there's magic at work. It's, it's not a faith thing. And the magic of Mary Poppins comes in that little gap between what the adults think they know and what the kids know. And asking the adults to believe the kids and asking the kids to believe in something more than they expected too. Another aspect of the the magic difference between the two Mary Poppins movies is that in the original Mary Poppins, Mary transitions to their magical adventures is always pretty frank, very direct, very straightforward, very ordinary. For example, in the chalk drawing, when she and the children come up to the chalk drawing, they're about to go for a walk in the park and Bert uh, basically dares Mary Poppins to do something magical. And when when Mary Poppins refuses to do this, he says, okay, I'll do it myself. And he says, well, first you wink and then you blink and then you, and then you jump forward. And he jumps on the chalk drawing and nothing happens. And Mary Poppins gets really impatient and she says, oh, Bert, why do you have to complicate things that are really quite simple? And then she does her magic, which is just one, two, three, jump. Very straightforward. And her other adventures are like that too. It's the ordinary juxtaposed with the magical right alongside it. They're having a very ordinary proper tea party at the top of someone's ceiling. Um, this Mary Poppins, however, has a more theatrical style. She, she comes in hanging on to the tail of the kite in full view of everyone. She takes them into the bowl, which is the corollary for the chalk drawing in the new movie. She takes them into the bowl by putting the bowl on a table and spinning it really fast. And then things start sparking and changing. And all of a sudden they're on the ceramic bowl. They're in the animated world. And her magic is like that pretty regularly. It's very flamboyant, very theatrical, very showy. And that wasn't the attitude towards magic that the, that the Julie Andrews Mary Poppins had at all. And I would argue that the more theatrical style actually makes the magic less magical than it was in the original Mary Poppins because it avoids having that direct contact between the absurdly ordinary, the completely mundane things that they're doing, and then the completely magical things that actually happen. So in the end, um, we have a very interesting example of the difference between good movie making, which this movie certainly is, 
and good storytelling and good good writing, which this movie certainly isn't. And analyzing the places where those cross or where they diverge can be a really educational experience. So then we come to the question, do we recommend this movie? Is it a movie that is worth watching? Is it a movie worthy of our attention? And that's not a simple answer. I think that for me, it was certainly worth watching because analyzing movies like this can teach us a lot about our own storytelling and about the way that we write or the way that we tell stories to other people or the way that other movies tell stories. The contrast between this movie and the original Mary Poppins, for example, makes me appreciate the original Mary Poppins all that much more. I don't think it's a movie that I will watch again. But was it worth watching? Do I regret watching it? No. Uh, did it have worthwhile parts? Sure. Would I tell someone else to watch it? Would I encourage someone else to watch it? Probably not. Not unless they were looking for an example of how to segregate the elements of movie making from writing. So hopefully you have found something to pique your interest, either to go and watch the movie and try to analyze it yourselves, to analyze a different movie and make completely different conclusions. That's great too. My hope for you is that you have many good conversations about the stories that you are watching or reading and that you more intentionally dedicate the movies or the stories that you are consuming to good purposes, whether or not they really are good movies, whether or not they're movies that you would watch over and over and over again or watch just once. I hope that you'll take even the movies that you would only watch the once or maybe even turn off halfway through and and analyze them, like use that time that you spent with that movie to learn something from it. Learn something good. You don't have to learn what the movie was thinking that they would teach you, but you can learn something from every movie. And this movie is one that I wasn't on board with their storytelling, so I wasn't learning what the movie thought it was teaching me, but I did learn a lot about movie making from the movie. So I wish you happy story talks, happy storytelling, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.